Good morning, Hill family. Uh, before we continue in worship through prayer, um, just it's a joy and pleasure to um, introduce um, our brother uh, uh, Dustin Saunders, who's here from Del Cerro, um, one of the uh, sister churches of ours in the uh, Pillar Network. Uh, he's uh, graciously going to preach for us today and encourage us in the word. And he, just to give a little background, um, his wife Sarah is here with him, and they have uh, three children. Um, he is an elder at Del Cerro, and he, uh, his focus is in worship, and um, I'm just really excited to uh, have him preach for us today. Uh, let's go to the Lord um, in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for being our God and Savior. Thank you for the grace that you extend to us each and every day in Christ Jesus. We thank you too, Lord, again, for just the privilege to call you Father, not on any merit of our own, not on any works that we have done, but purely and solely based upon the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. He made a way for us that we could not make. He paid a price for us that we could not pay. And he gave us a gift of life, and also the right to be sons and daughters of the living God, one that we will rejoice and give thanks to you throughout eternity. And Lord, as we sung this morning, we just think we are needy people. In fact, our very prayer is a confession of that dependency that we have upon you. We do come to you, Lord, with um, empty hands. The only thing that we have to bring to you is, is brokenness and sin, rebellion, hurt, and suffering. And Lord, you are the king who is in need of nothing. You are the one who gave us your one and only son, Jesus Christ, a savior, a sacrifice to atone for our sins, to make a way for us. The one who absorbed the full wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be given life and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ in exchange. In that we trust, in that we hold on to. And Father, today as we um, look into your word, I just pray that you would look into our hearts, that you would change and transform us, that you would truly make us more like your son. And remember, just help us to remember too that you will give us everything that we need. You have good intended for us. And Father, for often sometimes we wouldn't recognize good if we tripped over it. Often the good that we want is not the good that's truly good for us. So, Father, we, we know that you know what you're doing. We trust that you're doing a work in us and through us in Christ Jesus to transform us, Lord. And, Father, it hurts at times, and it's uncomfortable, and often there's confusion, Lord. And, Father, as we look in today's word, too, we just are warned about idleness, Father, help us to, to make the most of our time. Help us to realize that time may be one of the greatest gifts that you've given us. And that our time is not truly our own time. After all, we've been bought with a price by the blood, precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we are not here to live for ourselves, but we are here to live for you. And in that, we will find true freedom, true joy, true contentment. What the world cannot offer us, you have given us in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, help us to make the most of our time. Lord, help us to, 
to encourage our brothers and sisters. Many of us today here, if not all of us, we're in need of encouragement. Um, sometimes our faith is lacking. We, we look at the circumstances that we're in. We take our eyes off of Christ and focus on hardships or trials or tribulations or just the injustice in this world, Lord. But, Father, help us to reset our eyes on your Savior who is working all things for our good in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another with the gospel and remind one another that this is not all there is. The best is yet to come. Help us to encourage one another that when we go through trials and difficulties, that it's God's discipline, not not in the sense of punishment, but he is training us and strengthening us, helping us to exercise our faith so that when we're empty, Christ comes pouring out. Lord, help us to realize that when we are at the end of our rope, that is when you can come to the rescue and shine through us. And Father, I pray too for us, um, when evil is done to us, words are spoken against us, when there are injustices, when we're overlooked, Lord, that we would remember to not pay back evil for evil, but do what is good. Be a dispenser of your grace. After all, we were rebels. And in our rebellion, you showed us love. You poured out your grace and forgiveness and mercy upon us, Lord. Help us reflect our Savior. We can't do it on our own. And Lord, help us to to do good to all, um, especially our brothers and sisters, but even to those outside the family. Help us, Lord, to love one another in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see, they smell, and they know that Jesus is amongst us and that we've walked with him. Father, we're asking you to, to do a miracle in us individually and corporately. Have your will um, made clear to us and help us, Lord, to be transformed into the likeness of your Son. We know that he who began a good, faith, good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Good morning, Hill Church. It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Bring you greetings from all the saints at Del Cerro Baptist Church. We love the partnership that we have with you in the Pillar Network, but ultimately in the Gospel of Christ. And we love your church. We pray for you often. So again, it's an honor to be here, to worship with you. Um, I was talking with someone this morning. It's one of the funny things about being a pastor is you have lots of pastor friends and you almost never get to go to their churches because you're serving at your church. So I've known Jimmy for a while, prayed for the hill for a while, but this is my first time being here on a Sunday morning. So it's a wonderful time and I'm glad to be here. Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to just look at two verses this morning, verses 14 and 15. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 and 15. Let me read the text and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Paul writes this, And we urge you, brothers, 
Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you this morning desiring to hear you speak in your word. Lord, help us to hear it. Give us understanding by the power of your spirit. And Lord, understanding, then make your words a joy to us. Make your words and your commands the delight of our hearts. Make them our food, as Jesus says, to do your will. We are your people, Lord. We love you. Help us to love you more and more this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you've probably heard the Bible referred to uh, as God's instruction manual, the owner's manual for life, God's how-to book, right? Maybe you've said that phrase, maybe you've heard it, um, but, but I, I want to put this idea forward to you this morning. This way of res- referring to Scripture is at best misguided and at worst dangerously misleading. Why? Because the Bible is infinitely more than a book filled with instructions, filled with things to do. And also this, it's not primarily about us. It's primarily about Jesus Christ. It's it's about the triune God's redemptive plan to save and restore humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the message of the Bible, the thrust of the Bible, is not good advice, but good news. The message of the Bible is not, here's a list of things to do if you want your life to go right, but it's about what God has done, is doing, and will do. It's about Him, it's not about us. In fact, the Bible is more like the Lord of the Rings than it is an instruction manual. It's a story. It's a story. It's about a God who reveals himself, the humans who rebelled against him, and the Savior he sent to redeem them and to conquer the enemy. It's the story of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death. It's a story of redemption, salvation. It's a revelation of who God is and who we are in relation to him. So to reduce the Bible to a set of instructions to an owner's manual, is to miss the point. It's to take the focus off God, off of his story, and to place it on ourselves. And if you're trying to motivate yourself in your Bible reading plan, calling it an instruction manual is probably not going to help very much. But, okay, so it's not an instruction manual, but the Bible does contain instructions for us. It does contain God's revelation to us, his people, on how we are to live and how we are to worship so as to please Him. God has graciously revealed to us, His people, how we are to live so that we might persevere in our faith to the end. And that is what we have in our text this morning here in the very last section of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. 
Now, you guys are in the book of Acts right now, and you haven't gotten to Paul's second missionary journey, but on his second missionary journey, in, in Acts chapter 17, Paul will plant the Thessalonian church, and it's, it's quite a dramatic story. He comes into Thessalonica, and he plants, he preaches, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, people get saved, and then within a matter of weeks, he's run out of town. He's persecuted and, and chased out of town. So this church, this, this church plant, think of this, this church plant full of brand new believers is already under heavy persecution. They're in a city that hates them. They're being persecuted by the government, the Jews, and yet here they are. Paul and Timothy are chased out of town, and they run over to Berea, and now they're, they're worried, and this is what's going on in the first half of 1 Thessalonians, they're worried about what's going on. Paul's not sure this little church of, of brand new believers that's being persecuted is going to endure in the faith. So he sends Timothy, go check on them. Timothy comes back to Paul where he is and gives him a report. They're standing firm in their faith. They've remained faithful. Christ has preserved them. And so then in response to Timothy's report, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, encouraging them affirming them, brothers, you've been chosen by the Lord. How does he know this? Because they've been standing firm. And so he begins to answer some of their questions. And then in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, he gives them his final instructions on how they are to live as the body of Christ and how they will together not only be sanctified, but persevere in the faith. That's what we have this morning. Much like our churches. This is a church in need of instruction and in need of encouragement. So what are Paul's final instructions? Well, we've just read the ones we're going to look at this morning. And the outline this morning is simple and straightforward. We're just going to walk through. Paul has six commands in these two verses. We're going to walk through them phrase by phrase and see what the Holy Spirit has for us. Now look at the first phrase. And we urge you, brothers... So this is going to set up everything that follows here. This is Paul's exhortation. That's why he says, he says urge, I urge you, brothers. These are not Paul's suggestions, one possible way of living together in community. These are not good advice. These are God's commands. The apostle Paul is, is leaning on his apostolic authority to say, I urge you to follow through in what we're going to see. Jesus is the Lord of the church. And so he tells us how we are to live and interact with one another. We don't get to decide these things. God defines our unity, he defines our love, and he defines what a healthy church will look at. So keep that in mind as we move through. The second thing to notice about this, this phrase here, we urge you brothers, notice who it's addressed to. Brothers, it's, it's plural. In other words, these words, these commands are addressed to a, a church. They're not addressed to individuals or an individual, but to a church. All of the commands here in this text are plural, corporate in nature. These are things that the church is to do together. You, church, are all responsible for one another. You are a family. There's, there's no such thing in Scripture as a private, individual faith in Jesus. You can't obey a plural command by yourself. You can't do it. So these are commands to a church. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of his people, the church, and specifically of a local church like the Hill, like Del Cerro Baptist. 
And so you together bear the glorious privilege and responsibility of living according to God's design for his church. One commentator wrote this about this passage. He says, I love this, he says, It's the church and not the leaders whom Paul now urges to give pastoral care to specifically needy people in the congregation and indeed to each other. The existence of pastors does not relieve the members of their responsibilities to care for one another. See, Paul had commanded the church in the previous couple of verses, verse 12 and 13, to respect its pastors, to esteem them highly in love. But that doesn't mean they're the ones who do all the ministry and all of the care. Ephesians 4 tells us that the job of pastors is to equip the congregation for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. This is why the most common term in Scripture for elders or or pastors is overseers. We're, We're just overseeing and participating in the ministry of the church body that you are all doing. So these commands, keep that in mind as we go through this text. These are commands to the church to do together. So what's the first one? We'll look at verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. In other words, warn the idol. Or or you could say, correct the idol. Counsel them to cease being idle. Now, before we continue, we have to look at this word idle. Who are the idle? Right? If, if, if we're supposed to admonish the idle, well, we have to know who the idle are. And this is actually a, a strangely difficult question because Paul uses a very unique word here that he doesn't use in a lot of other places. So if you look at different translations of this verse, almost every translation translates this word differently. So ESV if you have ESV, that's what I have here. It says idle, admonish the idle. The NIV actually puts two words in because they're trying to get this range. They say idle and disruptive. Okay, so disruptive and idle, those are two very different things in English. The King James says unruly. The NET, undisciplined. The NLT says lazy. The CSB says irresponsible. The LSB says unruly. And the Geneva Bible says out of order. So these are all kind of very different things in English. So what's going on here? They're all trying to get at the same thing. And so it's, it's really hard to capture it in one word. Now, when I think of idle, I think lazy. That's just kind of our English word association. But the target, this group of people, is, is actually a, a much larger group of people. It's not specifically the lazy person, but rather someone who is disruptive or, or disorderly to the body of the church. I really like the, the, the Geneva Bible translation, out of order. Now here's how this word is defined in one of the, the dictionaries. Pertaining to being out of step and going one's own way, disorderly or insubordinate. Going one's own way. These are the people that must be admonished by the church. Now the result of going one's own way very well might be laziness. So laziness is included in this, but it's only a subcategory of a a bigger category. Someone may be living in laziness. How does this cause disorder in the church? Well, not working. They're refusing to provide for themselves, and so they're relying on others. They're becoming a burden on others. They're not able to serve others. That is a form of disorderliness. Paul addresses that actually in 2 Thessalonians. But but there are other ways to be disorderly. Ultimately, the person who is idle 
is a person who lives by their own rules instead of the word of God. This word in ancient times was used of a soldier who does not keep their place in the ranks. Okay, you see they're going their own way. They're out of step. This word was also used of one who went to the gymnasium but did not follow the list of rules that was on the wall, right? They don't wipe down the bench, or I don't know what they did in the first century. And so the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, says that this term really applies to all in the church who are living in, in willful sin, right? Which makes sense. They're, they're going their own way. They're saying, okay, I know God has said this. I know the church has said I need to live this way, but I'm going to live this way. That's the picture we're seeing here. A person who is a part of Christ's body, yet refuses to live according to the rules that Christ has given us. This person always becomes disruptive to the peace and unity of the church. Why? Because sin is disruptive to the peace and unity of the church. Now, this could come out in a lot of different ways. It could be very blatant. I've seen this. Interrupting members' meetings, slander, labeling false accusations, dramatic accusations of the pastors. Could be subtle. Living in private sin, thereby rejecting God's word, our sin. Even private sin always has a way of finding its way out. This is someone who either consciously or subconsciously thinks or acts like they are above God's word. And they demonstrate it by not listening to any of the other believers. They're they're unteachable. They're uncorrectable. They are out of order. Living by their own rules, their own standard. Not submitted to the church, its leaders, nor the scriptures. That's that's the diagnosis. That is who's the target of this, this category here. What's Paul's cure? Admonishment. Admonishment. Admonish the idol. What does it mean to admonish? That's not really a word we use a lot these days. It's a warning. Warn them. Correct them. Call them to repentance. Now again, this is the job of the church. This is your job, church, as as members. You must warn these people. Now this, this can look a lot of different ways. Individually, what does this look like? Well, it looks like when you go to a brother or sister you know is living in sin... And you lovingly warn them to stop and repent. Turn away from your sin, brother, sister. Don't go in that direction. Come back. Come back. I'm just an example. Say you know that one of your fellow church members is, is living or committing some form of sexual sin. You go to them, warn them, brother, this sin, if you continue in this, will lead to, to death. This isn't pleasing to God. You urge them to turn away from the sin. That's, that's admonishment, warning them, reminding them of what the scripture says about sin. I can remember a time in my own life that this, I experienced the admonishment and it was hugely beneficial. When I was younger, uh, growing in my knowledge of scripture, growing in my knowledge of theology, I had developed a way of speaking and interacting with people that was prideful and condescending. Of course, because I was prideful, I did not realize it. Uh, I, I, I was causing problems because of this. I mean, nothing big, nothing crazy, but a brother, a brother uh, in the Lord, a mentor at the time, he saw this. He saw what, what I was doing. And he, thankfully, he had followed this command. He took me to coffee one day and boldly but lovingly just set me straight. 
I don't remember specifically what he says, but it, it was something like, you know, I love that you're growing in these things. Here's some things you're doing that are good, but, but brother, the way that you're coming across to people is, is not prideful, it's, it's, or it is prideful. It's not Christ-like. You need to practice humility. Kind of dial it back, check your heart. Now, it was, it was hard to hear, especially as a young man. Of course, my immediate reaction was to get defensive, right? But I received it by the grace of God, and, and it has impacted me to this day and has become one of the things I remember of God's faithfulness to me in that time. One of the means that God uses for our sanctification and for our growth in godliness is the admonishment of our brothers and sisters. We often see it from the other side and go, that's awkward, I don't want to do it. But by not being faithful, we're actually withholding God's work in a believer's life. We need this. We all need this. And left to their own devices, this person becomes more disruptive, more disruptive, causing more disunity. This brother admonished me, and I I thank God for it. We're commanded to this. It's one of the ways that we protect our brothers and sisters from sin and from forsaking the faith. It's one of the ways that we protect the unity of the church. And so we need admonishment when we get out of line. But it's not just an individual matter. It's also corporate. According to Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, when a brother or sister refuses to repent of their sin privately, so you've gone to them as an individual, they remain in their sin, they remain disorderly, it's to be brought to the church, to the members. This is the corporate dimension of admonishment. We obey this as churches when we practice church discipline. When we as a body admonish a brother or a sister who is idle. Now, what does that look like? Well, we have a good example of this actually in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, Paul writes this. A lot of the same words here. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Okay, that's the same word. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. They're disrupting the fellowship. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, if someone is refusing to listen to what I have to say, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they should be ashamed of that. Don't regard him as an enemy. So this is not some type of shunning or anything like that. Warn him as a brother. And that, that word that's translated warn in ESV is the same word for admonish. The body, the church itself, is to warn them through its actions so that they will come back. This is, this is to be a warning, an admonishment. Again, this is not an excommunication. He's saying regard them still as a brother. But it's essentially maybe the last step before something like that if they refuse to repent. This, this unrepentant brother or sister is to be in some form excluded from the fellowship. In some way, the church is signaling to them, turn back from your sin. We love you. We love you. Come back into fellowship. If you continue in this path, there's nothing good that ends of it. It's supposed to be a, a warning, a wake-up call to bring them back. And this is what the Holy Spirit has chosen to use. So that's kind of a corporate admonishment. And as hard as that may be, you need to be ready to be faithful to these commands. Again, we, we need to place ourselves under the authority of God's word. We don't get to define what love is, but God defines it. And he's a lot more loving than us, I promise you. 
So many times we think we, our, our definition of love is better than God's. We're very foolish in that sense. But out of love for God and love for our brothers and sisters, we must admonish the idol. But that is not the only thing we do. We admonish the idol, but we also encourage the faint-hearted. And these are really important. So we're not to encourage the idol or to admonish the faint-hearted. If we cross these things up, we could actually cause a lot of damage. We're to admonish the idol, but encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. Who are the faint-hearted? It's the brothers and sisters who are discouraged in the faith, anxious, worried. For some reason, their, their, their faith in God is is wavering. I don't know why, but right now in, in our church, there's just this season, there's a lot of people that are this right now, just faint-hearted. And there's many reasons a believer in Christ might be discouraged in the faith. If anyone had reason to be discouraged, to be faint-hearted, I mean, the members of this Thessalonian church did. They were being persecuted by all in the city. They, their money was being taken from them. It certainly lost favor in the city. They, they had been accused of treason, Some of them may have lost jobs. Their families were persecuting them. Some of them had died. Paul is worried about them. And so it's an encouragement to a church he knows is experiencing affliction, a church that he was worried might not have made it. This is what it means to be faint-hearted, weighed down with the the darkness of the world, tempted to just give up, to give in, to despair, to hopelessness, wondering... My God, why, why is this happening? What is Dr. Paul's remedy for this faint-heartedness? Encouragement. Encouragement. You as a church must identify, keep your eyes open so that you can identify brothers and sisters who are discouraged in the faith and encourage them with the gospel of Christ. Comfort them with the glorious truth found in the scriptures And that's really important because the content of our encouragement is the gospel. We're not to just encourage with worldly platitudes or kind of empty Christian cliche phrases. That's not not meaningful. We're to come alongside them. Not with meaningless phrases. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out. No. We must encourage them with eternal truth, with the living word, with the good news of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death. This is what Paul had had done in in chapter 4. He had heard that some in the Thessalonian church were concerned about those who had died. They had some misunderstandings about things. You get their brand new church plan of brand new believers. So what does he tell them? Well, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You know, God's good. Just trust him and everything will be fine. No. He reminds them of the truths of, he gives them a doctrinal lesson of, of the truths of the end times, of the return of Christ, of the resurrection of the dead, and then finishes with these words. Therefore, Encourage one another with these words. The the content of the encouragement is doctrinal. It is the truths that we have learned from Scripture, the truths that the Holy Spirit has inspired and breathed life into. This is what will bring encouragement in a time of discouragement to a brother or sister. And we can obey this command in many ways. We obey this command when we pray for one another. We obey this command when we remind each other of the scriptures, point each other to Christ, individually or corporately. We obey this command when we sing songs together that remind each other of the faithfulness of Christ. I mean, th- think about this with me for a second. Now, there are many, I, I know there are people here today who fit this category, who are faint-hearted, discouraged in their faith. faith. 
Maybe you, it may be someone else. But some of your brothers and sisters here today are faint-hearted. And, and after the sermon, we're going to sing a song, Christ is the sure and steady anchor. This entire song is basically just one giant encouragement, reminder of who Christ is. But in that moment, in the songs that we sung before, in the song that we're going to sing after, the way that you can obey this command is to sing. To sing. That is one of the primary ways corporately, that we minister encouragement to one another, to sing loudly, to fill this room with your voices, with praise to God, strengthening the faith of our faint-hearted brothers and sisters. We've, in our culture and in the church, we've just over-individualized singing and worship. Right? We, we too often think of, of worship as a thing that happens between me and God when I'm singing, so we close our eyes we, we want all the distractions blocked out, but, but actually the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Yeah, sure, worship, we're worshiping God, of course. But one of the purposes of corporate worship is encouragement. So don't close your eyes, look around. And don't sing quietly so just God and the, the Holy Spirit can hear you. Sing loudly so that your brothers and sisters can hear you. When you refuse to sing... Not only are you withholding your praise from a worthy God, but you're withholding encouragement from your family. Now, of course, God doesn't need your worship. God doesn't need our singing. It doesn't add anything to Him. But your brothers and sisters do need it. They need to hear your singing. So sing. Lift your voices together. Fill this room with the praises of God. And encourage one another. Again, we are responsible. You are responsible for those among you who are idle, so admonish the idle. Responsible for those who are faint-hearted, encourage them. And thirdly, help the weak. Help the weak. Now, weak kind of sounds similar to faint-hearted, and there's probably some overlap, but it is different. The weak are those who, who need an extra amount of care. And, and basically what Paul is saying here is give them the care that they need. Help them. Now, faint-hearted, I think, is a little more spiritual, emotional in nature. Weak is someone who needs physical help. And, and it can apply to lots of circumstances. Maybe it's those who are physically weak. Maybe sickness, maybe old age, or, or something else. Maybe, maybe they're homebound. Paul says, help them. Help them in whatever way you can. Maybe it's socially, economically weak. The poor, orphans, single moms, single dads, immigrants, refugees. Help them, Paul says. Help them. There are those who are religiously weak, meaning maybe their conscience is very sensitive Paul uses the, the word in this sense in Romans 14.1 when he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. So we are to help these weak brothers and sisters, no matter what type of, of weakness they have, and not look down on them as lesser because they're weak. We're not to be exhausted with them. In fact, we're to be devoted to their care, to make every effort to help them to be just as much a party, part of the body as anyone else. Paul says in Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. If they need physical help, food, rides to church, rides to the doctor, help with rent, someone to push their wheelchair, we do our best to help. If they need spiritual help, we give it to them, praying with them, again encouraging them, devoting ourselves to helping all those in the body who are weak. 
admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak. And in all of this, Paul says, next one, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Now, this might be the hardest one. We can all bear with people and help them for a time, but we get quickly impatient, do we not? All these situations take time. Usually it's not one admonishment and then someone turns and everything's great. One encouragement, I'm no longer faint-hearted. That's not how things work. So Paul, very wisely under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, be patient with all of them. All of them. Every single one of them. The disruptive brother who's walking in sin, be patient. The faint-hearted sister who, who just can't seem to get her head above the water in her faith, be patient. The constantly weak and needy in our church who need constant care, be patient, be patient, bear with them. Now, this is difficult. We live in a fast-paced world. We live in a world where we can click buttons on a screen and stuff gets delivered to our door. We want things done now. We want someone to have, especially as, especially as a man, we want someone, oh, there's your problem. Let me say the right thing. Now, why aren't you fixed? I don't understand. Right? We think of sanctification like this sometimes. We get frustrated with people. The Spirit does not work according to our time schedule. We must be patient with everyone. We must continue to admonish, continue to encourage, continue to help without limit until Christ returns. Now, now we want to excuse ourselves sometimes, right? Well, I'm just not a patient person. That's not an option for a Christian. Let's remind ourselves what the Bible says about patience. God himself is patient. It's one of his defining perfections. Exodus 34, the Lord passes before Moses and what he says about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says, you want to know who I am? One of the things I'm going to tell you is patient. Patience is a characteristic of love, Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 13, this is not about weddings. It's about Christians. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. God has been and continues to be patient with you and with me. Second Peter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So if we claim to be the people of the infinitely patient God, if we claim to love His church, if we understand and believe in the gospel, which is a gospel of patience, we must be patient with one another. And when you're tempted to feel impatient, remind yourself of the gospel, remind yourself of the character of God, remind yourself especially of God's patience towards you. A people filled with the Spirit of God will be patient, gracious, and loving because that's what God is like. It's the essence of the gospel. Now, of course, this doesn't come from our own strength. Again, it's the fruit of the Spirit, so we can pray for it, but we must exhibit it. Patient with the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. Patient with them all. And Paul continues, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Now, church, we must never repay anyone for mistreating us. Now, this kind of on a larger scheme seems easy, kind of related to patience. We shouldn't repay a wrong for a wrong. Whenever someone wrongs us, in a sense, this doesn't give us a free pass, well, then I'm, I'm going to say this to them. 
It's easy on big things, but it's hard in the day-to-day life. This is our natural reaction is to kind of snap back at people, right? I see this in my kids. My two oldest kids are five and three. Five, my daughter's five, my son is three. The other day I heard them, you know, I'm in the kitchen or something. I can, you can start to hear the argument brewing if you have young kids. The voices start to get elevated, so I come in, they start yelling at each other, see what's going on. My daughter, Joelle, was, was building something with blocks or something like that, and my son, Zephaniah, had just knocked it down. Okay, classic girl, boy, just classic. So naturally, she screamed at him, and what did he do? He screamed right back at her, and he's a lot louder than she is, although smaller. And so she started crying, then he's crying, and it, you know, so I calm them down, explain to them, guys, you know, we can't yell, all the, all the normal stuff. They hug. It's all good. And then my daughter says this, don't worry, Daddy. I won't scream at him anymore unless he knocks down my blocks again. <laughs> it's like, no, that, that, that's, that's repaying evil for evil. Like, I, I, I will be nice to you as long as you're nice to me, you know. And again, so we kind of like, oh, of course, repay evil for evil. I would never do that. But then when it comes into the day-to-day circumstances, we often do this. Our, our, in our sinfulness, our immaturity, we often think this way. Well, I wouldn't talk to my wife that way if she didn't say that, right? Or, or I would respect my husband, but do you know that he does? That's repaying evil for evil. I would obey God, but I can't because this person did this. And so then I'm a little justified in my reaction. No. Paul says, don't fall into that temptation. We must not be like that. Sin does not excuse sin. And this is clear. I mean, the the, the whole testimony of the New Testament is this. Brothers and sisters, we are not to be a people marked by pettiness, by grudges, by tit-for-tat, eye-for-an-eye mentality. We are to be a people marked, marked rather by love, by graciousness, by radical forgiveness, never repaying evil for evil, never snapping back at someone. But, but that's kind of the negative side. We're not to repay evil for evil, but that's a pretty low standard. Paul then says next, the sixth command, we are instead to seek the good always. Look, look at what he says here in verse 15. But, and so instead of repaying sin for sin... Always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Always. This is what love does. Instead, seek to do good to everyone. To those in church and to those outside of it. Always. Not on Sundays only, but always. Now this verse is really interesting. Look again at verse 15. Always seek to do good. This, this word seek is a very active, forceful word. It implies an active seeking, an active looking, a pursuit of doing good towards others. It's the same word translated in the rest of Scripture as persecute. So when you're persecuting someone, you are seeking to get them out of there. Paul says here, seek to do good. Think, think of Paul before his conversion. He was persecuting the church. What was he doing? He was seeking out Christians pursuing them, trying to catch them and arrest them. So similarly, we are to seek to do good to everyone, to pursue the good, to look for it, to find it. To, it's hiding. We've got to get it out and do it. Means, means, in a sense, we've got our eyes just fixed. We're looking for good to do to people. We're to turn over every rock, look behind every door for good deeds that we can bless the saints with. 
actively. Not just kind of hanging out and if you see an opportunity, okay, I guess I'll help. But actively looking, earnestly looking, passionately, with all of our effort for ways to do good and to bless those around us. This, this love here, this good, it's, it's a decision. It's an act of the will. We should spend time thinking, planning, strategizing about ways to do good. Strategizing ways to bless people. Praying about opportunities to love our church and love our neighbors. Devoted to doing good works as a way to love those around us. Giving ourselves, our time, our money, our energy in order to bless those in our church and those outside. Again, this is the clear testimony of the scriptures. Titus 3 says we must be ready always to do good works. Paul writes to be ready for every good work. Always ready. Always ready. We're we're kind of like on our toes, always ready to do a good work. Later in Titus 3, he says we should be devoted to good. He says the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things, essentially the gospel, so that those who have believed in God may be careful, intentional, to devote themselves to good works. Devoted. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we're to be ready for good works, devoted to the good works. And then here's the corporate dimension, Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So one of the ways that we seek to do good to each other is by stirring up each other to do good to other people. How often? Always, Paul says. Always. Always. Always seeking to do good. Always stirring one another up. Always ready to do good works. Devoted to them. Devoted to each other. Some of those good works are listed here. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. These are good works that God has ordained for us to do. That God has ordained as a means of our sanctification. Of our growth in Christ. This... This is our, our calling, brothers and sisters. It's, it's a waiting calling. We will often fail. We will constantly need to rely on God's grace. We will, you will at times in your Christian life, find yourself in every one of these categories. There will be times where you need admonishment. There will be times where you need encouragement. There will be times where you need help. There will be a lot of times where you need patience. And likewise, there will be times where you, by God's grace, will have the opportunity to admonish, to help, to encourage. God has, by His grace, given us these things to exercise on His behalf, the Holy Spirit working through us. So let us be faithful. Let us together strive to obey Christ. And again, we don't, we don't accomplish these things on our own. We don't accomplish these things in the power of our flesh. We don't accomplish these things, the strength of ourselves. No. Bob's prayer was wonderful. We, we accomplish, the, accomplish these things being fueled by God's grace that he has shown us in the gospel. These commands are not to be obeyed so that, so that you can work yourself into God's good graces. But these are to be obeyed out of the overflow of love that God has lavished upon each one of you in Jesus Christ. 
These are not things that you do out of duty or obligation, but these are things that you do to display the lordship of Christ and the goodness of God to each other and to the watching world. And the truth is, like I said, we all need this. We all need all of this, in fact. This church, your church, our church, is a body of believers who are all different in different seasons. Some idle, some faint-hearted, some weak. What do they need? They need you to be faithful to these commands. They need your admonishment. They need your encouragement. They need your help, and they need your patience. They need your good works, and they need your love. This is, this is why, one of the reasons why, the local church is so important. Again, you cannot obey these commands outside of the local church. God has ordained to use each one of us in the lives and sanctification of our brothers and sisters. So be faithful. When we were dead in our sins, trespasses, slaves to our sin, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, for us. He made us alive in him. He redeemed us through his life, death, and resurrection. And Christ has placed you, me, in his family, the church, so that we might display the goodness and loving kindness of our God. He has given us a mission. He's given us instructions on how we are to interact with each other. He's called us to live alongside one another and to grow in Christ's likeness together by loving one another in Christ. And most importantly, He's filled each one of us and the church with the Holy Spirit who is now at work among us, sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus. May He continue to do so more and more here at the hill. Brothers and sisters, God has been faithful to us and he will continue always and forever to be faithful to us. So relying on his grace, let us continue to be faithful to him and to each other. Amen? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so patient. You have demonstrated all of these things first and foremost to us in the gospel. We have seen them in your son, Jesus. So now, Lord, I pray that you would make them all a reality in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Empower the Hill Church to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to be patient, to help the weak, Lord. Give us the eyes of faith to see these things and give us the faith to follow through on them, Lord. And Lord, work through each and every one of them. Make us more and more like Jesus each day, Father. Preserve us in the faith as we seek to worship and obey you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.